And if you don't have your Bible, it will be behind me on the screen. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I arbor, abhor, the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up, bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, Is there still anyone with you? He shall say, No. And he shall say, Silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? There's one plow where they're with, there with oxen. But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath and from the book of Arabah. May God bless the reading of his word. We're continuing on through Amos. And again, these chastisements, these, um, this recognition that the people are wrong. And then today we're seeing how they're going to be wrong about a few different things and how that ultimately leads to their judgment even further. Um, and so let's continue verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord the God of hosts. I... Abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Am I saying that right this time? Thank you. Um, all right, we're going to go back to our map. I lost my, my stick. We got it. All right, so we're still talking about Israel. Um, and we're going to talk about Lodabar, which we think might be right here. Um, and then eventually we're going to talk about down in here too, because this is all of Israel all up in here. Um, and we're going to see these different places and what they mean ultimately for what is being prophesied today. So for the second time in Amos, we find that the Lord has sworn. Each time that this expression is used, it leads to judgments for disobedience. We also recognize that when the Lord swears by himself, it is the highest oath that can be sworn. For God will accomplish all that he says that he will, especially if he swears to himself that he'll do it. Thus, whatever judgment is claimed will happen. From this, God speaks against the pride of Jacob. This pride will be further spelled out a few verses below. For now, God sets himself against the pride of Jacob and against their strongholds in particular. The fact that strongholds is mentioned, may very well focus on military confidence. Thus, the focus will be um, a focus on their military achievements in particular. And because of God's hatred for their self-pride in their strongholds and their fortresses, God will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Now, the city may represent Samaria, which is the capital of Israel, but it may actually represent all the cities as a way of saying All of it will be sent into judgment. Now verse 9. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, 
shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say no. And he shall say, silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. We now receive a prophecy over the coming destruction which will occur when God delivers up the city. The concept of ten men in one house is likely a way of expressing the total destruction which will occur. Ten men were the smallest fighting unit at the time during warfare. Thus, all that would remain would be a minuscule amount from the military especially, and of the buildings but a small portion, as it says, one house. Verse 10 may or may not be the same house found in verse 9. Regardless, the individual who is to come to take care of the bodies arrives at the house where the bodies are. There they find one remaining and hiding in the house. The relative who has come to take care of the corpses asks if there are any others alive, to which the one who replies says, no. Now this harrowing story is not just about the man in the house. Instead, the focus is on the last sentence, which the relative who comes from the body says, Silence! We must not mention the name of the Lord. Why is it that they are so afraid to mention the name of the Lord? We can be sure it is not merely an oral statement about the Lord, since the relative just uttered his name. Instead, it reflects the great judgment which has occurred. The slaughter slaughter would be so severe that the people would be afraid to call upon the Lord their God. As it is, he was the one who brought forth this destruction. And as such, they are afraid of even lamenting to the Lord because of it. Now verse 11. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. As we saw, the people were afraid to invoke the name of the Lord because his hand was against them. Now we find this to be the case for sure. For it is the Lord himself who commands that the great house be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. He is the one who will bring the destruction. He will see it done. Thus it is not the human agency which is as important. Instead, it is the reality that God will bring about this destruction. And as we can see, the destruction will be severe. Now verse 12. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. At this point, Amos uses some analogies to bring home the point of their failure. He asked the rhetorical question, do horses run on rocks? Um, And the answer to this is no. And this does not mean like little rocks as in pebbles on a street or anything like that, but instead reflects an area where good-sized rocks are prevalent, um, where it would be even hard for a human to run. Under such conditions, a horse would not be able to run as it does on an open field. The same question is said concerning oxen. One would not plow an area with these rocks. It wouldn't be the greatest way to cultivate the land to plow an area filled with these great rocks. Obviously, along with the previous statement about horses, the point is to bring to mind the absurd notion for a point. And that point is that the people turn justice into poison and fruit of righteousness into wormwood. The people had turned that which should be good 
and turned it into evil. Or said a different way, that which is good, they have no taste for. That which is true justice actually tastes bitter and poisonous to them because of their lifestyles and their choices. As such, they are unable to appreciate justice, nor do they understand righteousness. And all that they do consider justice and righteous is in fact not, and it is far from it. As such, they know that horses do not run in an area filled with rocks, and they know not to cultivate land which is full of rocks, yet they do not know what is just or righteous. Verse 13. You who rejoice in low debar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? At this point, Amos reflects back on the statement previously said. As we remember, God hates their strongholds, which likely represents their military prowess. During the time of Jeroboam II, the Israelites managed to regain a lot of lost territory. Lodabar was a border town in Gilead, while Kanaim, or Karnaim, I should say, was over halfway between Samaria and Damascus. Now, the Israelites, they were celebrating these victories, and in some respect that they should. However, we notice something ominous about their rejoicing. Notice how Amos critiques those who say, Have we not won by our own strength, captured Karnaim for ourselves? This statement reflects their understanding. They're praising themselves for their military victories. Yet they should be praising God for their victories over the enemies, for it was him who caused them to begin in the first place. And we'll see that later. Now, verse 14. For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Rabbah. The military success did not end with them going to Karnaim, for indeed, they went as far as Lebo Hamath, which was well north of Damascus. As such, despite their military victories, God will raise up a nation against the Israelites. Though the Israelites had conquered the land, they will not be able to handle the oncoming onslaught from the nation who will be used by God for his judgment. That judgment will be a great judgment. For the impression which will come will encompass the entire nation of the northern kingdom of Israel. From Lebohon Math, which is the northernmost point, all the way down to the brook of Arabah, which would be the southernmost point. In other words, this is going to be a complete and total defeat against the Israelites. Now the main point of this passage is to reflect on the great anger of God against the Israelites. That anger has caused hatred toward them from God and leads to judgment. God will cause great devastation to occur for two reasons. One is for their unrighteousness and their injustice. With true righteousness and justice not being sought. The second is for their pride. For they have lifted themselves higher than they should through their military conquests. As such, God will take their pride completely away from them. Now some application points. To loathe justice and righteousness. That's a long one. (laughs) In today's text, we again read of the people and their distaste for righteousness and justice. Amos discusses this by saying, The people turn justice to poison and righteousness to wormwood. 
In that capacity, it means that those things which they consider just and righteous are in fact not just and they're not righteous. And because of this, we could say it the other way, which is that the people did not actually like righteousness or justice. Now, it is easy for us to say that they do not like righteousness or justice. It is easy to use these terms to describe a society. This, however, is not enough. In order for us to understand what kind of society we are looking at, it is important for us to understand what it means when we say um, righteousness and justice and unrighteousness and injustice. In our world today, such a statement will lead many to say um, or to question that this question can't be answered. In our, in our understanding today, it is just as right as another way would and seems presumptuous to say that this is righteous and this is just and this is unrighteous and this is unjust. In fact, anyone who says that they have an absolute understanding of such concepts are mostly shot down and ignored or at best called a bigot or an extremist or whatever name you can think of. But before we get into our society any further, let's consider the society that we are seeing in Amos. Imagine a society which allows without any worry the rich to trample on the poor. Consider a society in which the rich abuse the poor. Many of us can see it in Amos as Amos has many times prophesied against such um, distortions, such individuals who would do such a thing. Now this is where it goes a little deeper. For not only imagine a society in which it is allowed that the rich trample on the poor, But then imagine a society in which it is considered just. Imagine a society where it is considered righteous. Where it is not considered immoral, but considered moral. It might not be jarring enough for us to talk about the rich above the poor. Many of us consider our own society flawed in that regard, just a little bit. But let's look at it. um, another feature in their society. Consider what we read from the prophet Hosea concerning the kingdom of Israel. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Now what do we notice in this? we notice that the Israelites were practicing cult prostitution. This was often the case with pagan deities of uh, fertility. The way one would worship such a deity would go to have intercourse with the temple prostitute. Thus, in the land of Israel, the land belonging to God, to Yahweh, the people were practicing these ways of worship with these temple prostitutes. What God deemed inappropriate, unacceptable, the people practice without remorse. Regardless, the society at large believed that such practices were fine. In fact, these kinds of practices in society were not only fine, not only permissible, but one would be considered more righteous for doing these acts. They would be closer to whatever God they were worshipping because they would be practicing worshipping the way that their God wanted. So imagine a society where it is not frowned upon to have promiscuous sex for the sake of worship. 
To us, that seems crazy. But to that society, it was actually just. It was righteous. It was holy. It was even good for them to worship in such ways. In this, we see why Amos speaks to the people as he does. He condemns them because they quite literally take righteousness and justice and turn it completely around. But wait, 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 wait. If you're a member of our own society, you might be asking yourself, how can you say that about them? How can you say that they are turning righteousness and justice upside down? It is at this point that we must turn further into the scriptures. Consider what we read in Deuteronomy 23, 17-18. None of your daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow. Both, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now let's consider Exodus 23, 6-8. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in this lawsuit, Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Leviticus 19.15 You shall do no injustice to the court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Leviticus 27.8 And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest. And the priest shall value him. And the priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. Deuteronomy 15.7-11 If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your lands that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say the seventh year of the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for the, this the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So how do we know that temple prostitution is corrupt and unrighteous? How do we know not to have broken court systems? And how do we know that trampling on the poor is unjust and unrighteous? God. If God is righteous, moral, good, and just, then we must conclude that our foundation for these concepts rests on God and his law. Thus, when God calls such worship practices evil, and when he calls them an abomination, and when he calls such um, societal corruption in court, and against the poor, unrighteous and unjust, then they are based upon what is the absolute of righteous, good, holy, moral, and just, and that is God himself. This is how we find ourselves in our own society. It is possible, or is it possible, that there are those in our own society who turn righteousness into poison, turn justice into wormwood. Is it possible 
that we have allowed such practices to exist in our own society. Some will say to cult prostitution, why no, because we do not have worship rights or worship sites um, for these things to occur. They all occurred in the temples, so we don't have any temples anymore, so there can't be cult prostitution. That's only partially true. Consider this reality. The naturalist is someone who believes that the physical is all that there is. Much of our modern society is built upon the concept of naturalism. Thus, when we see individuals such as Kinsey come forward and encourage the sexual revolution, we need to understand that he is looking at humanity from the perspective that the physical is all there is. So no spiritual, no God, just the physical. Now many people have been influenced by the sexual revolution whether they realize it or not. The sexual revolution allows any sexual practice because the goal is not to be inhibited by religion or morality, since such concepts are not by definition physical concepts. They do not exist in a naturalistic worldview. I mean, show me a moral, give me something moral, just give me something so that I can hold. You can't. It's it's not naturalism. Um, As such, in our own society, we have seen a rise in promiscuous sex, the rise in immoral sexual behavior. Can we really not say that such individuals aren't worshipping? They may not have a god, but that does not mean that they are not worshipping something, and that is themselves. Who needs a god for gratification when you can simply take it for yourself under this kind of an understanding? Thus, we do see it in society. We do see a kind of worship of false gods. The problem is, in our society, in particular, humanity has rejected the one true God and placed humanity in his place. Humanity, then, is the God of our culture and our society. Humanity is the God whom we adore, and we worship this God by giving into whatever desires this God wants. So it is, we in our own society can easily turn righteousness to poison and justice to wormwood, because that which is truly righteous and truly just we cannot stand. And so we reinvent righteousness and justice for our own ends. In this way, God is rejected, and righteousness and justice, as they are meant to be perceived with an everlasting God, who is righteous and just, are equally rejected and replaced. We see it not only in the sexual revolution, But I'll tell you, within our court systems, and with the rich very often taking complete advantage of the poor, and if you don't believe me, just go out into the world for about 20 minutes, and you'll see it. Um, Our own society is then as guilty of this as any other pagan society. We as Christians, then, have a responsibility to call out such injustice and unrighteousness. And we can do so because we have a foundation which is God himself. It is by him we define and understand justice and righteousness. It is by God that we understand morality and goodness, for God himself is the ultimate good and from which all morality flows. Thus, we must find our voice in our society. Will we, will we be called bigots for doing so? Yes, more than likely. Will we be called extremists? Yes. Will we be called every name in the book? Yes. We're talking about Christianity. This has been done for centuries. I mean, since Peter, 
and the twelve apostles, people have been calling us these names. But in order to fulfill our prophetic responsibility, we must adhere to the scriptures and believe in what they define as just and righteous and live according to it and proclaim it. We who have a reason for morality, who have a reason for justice, who have a reason for righteousness, who have a reason even for love, should not be timid to share that reason. The world cannot provide an adequate answer for what morality, justice, righteousness, or even love is. It cannot provide an answer as to why humanity should seek these things. Indeed, once pressed, humanity cannot truly say that there is even a difference between good and evil because such concepts cannot be adequately defined by their own worldviews. And I bring back the naturalists who would say that if the physical is all that there is, then the concept of evil and good mean nothing, which is sorrowful, (laughs) very sorrowful, because a lot of people believe that. We can and we should continue to define these things in light of the revelation of God through the scriptures, and mainly through the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. It is through him we will understand and we will stand firm against the beliefs which we find all around us. And in his grace and mercy, we will continue to seek these things, knowing that they exist because God exists. And it is from him that these concepts of justice, of righteousness, goodness, and even love exist. In this we know that because they do exist through him, we can reach them and grasp them and proclaim them to the world in grace, mercy, patience, a lot of patience, and love. Now, more on humility. Last week we discussed the necessity of humility. In particular, the focus was when it came to physical or material blessings. As such... There are many who believe that because they have worked hard or because they have blessings, they can use such blessings as they will. Um, Unfortunately, such a view is foreign to what we find in the scriptures, for we know that it is divine providence that takes us and places us where we are. An example from last week was when we considered the difference between one of us making $15 an hour versus the person in another country working just as hard making a few dollars an hour. Ultimately, it is not that we work harder or are more deserving. Ultimately, it comes down to God's favor, since we do not choose which family or which nation we're born into and which we live. Well, later on we can, but, but God makes that decision for us when we're born. Thus, we should remain in humility. Our nation is one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest nations on the planet. Perhaps the wealthiest nation which have ever truly existed. We who live in such a society receive physical and material blessings should then remain humble while receiving them, knowing that it is by God's grace. Now in today's text, we receive another dose of humility. Consider what Amos says. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength conquered Karnaim for ourselves? Now we notice what it is that they're proclaiming. They're rejoicing in their own strength. They're claiming that it is by their own hands alone that these military victories took place, that their kingdom has grown. If they took time to consider it, they might conclude that such a statement is false. It was not their own strength which allowed them these victories and this expansion. It was God's providence. 
This is also what further separates these individuals from someone like David, who was discussed last week. David, in his victories, gave glory to God for each and every one. Yet these individuals do not give glory to God, but their own strength. Yet consider what we read in 2 Kings, which describes the same account that we're reading in Amos. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the king of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amatai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Joash. Interesting. These military victories are the ones described in Amos who was prophesying during this time of Jeroboam II. In 2 Kings, then, we see the truth of the matter. It was not that the people were so great, but that God was great. And in an act of grace and mercy, he delivered them using Jeroboam II. Yet instead of praising God, who had given the enemy over to Israel, they claimed the victory for themselves, for their own strength. It was I who did it, therefore I received the glory. This brings us to one of the greatest problems humanity faces. Pride. The majority of us believe that the majority of blessings which God gives us actually come from ourselves. Whether it be work ethic, financial gains, military victory, intelligence, physical attributes. Many believe that they have the right to take credit for these things. Yet that is false. While it is true that we must be willing to be participants in these things, in the end it is God who gives us the blessings. For example, the athlete who is in peak physical shape. Not me. That is not me. They have worked, hard, worked out hard. They've done a lot. However, how did they get into such a position to succeed in such a way? From where does their ability to work hard come from? Where do they receive the ability to have their base endurance, their base strength, their base stamina? Yes, they work hard at it. But their base abilities come from God to begin with. When it comes to intelligence, it is true one has to do work hard at gaining intelligence. We have to read books, um, work on problem-solving, Learn from other people, from teachers, in order to gain intelligence. There is work from our side. However, what gives us our base intelligence? From where do some people seem to learn uh, much more easily and others have a harder time with it? Where does our ability to learn itself come from? Well, it comes from God. There is not one blessing in this life which does not originate with God. As such, we should refrain from taking too much credit for said blessings. We should refrain from taking more credit than our own responsibility is responsible for. God leaves us responsible 
with the blessings which we receive. The winning athlete, the intellectual, the winning general. As such, they are responsible with using whatever attributes given to them and then glorify God by giving them, forgiving them the ability to do well. So again, what do we see here? Another call to humility. A reminder that though we are responsible with the abilities and blessings we have received to do well with them, while at the same time recognizing that God deserves the glory in full. Many might find this displeasing because many of us recognize that we go through the physical trials. We do the work. We are actively involved, like the athlete or the businessman. However, this is even more of a blessing that we are able to be actively involved. And it should cause us great joy knowing that we can participate with the strengths and and abilities given to us. This humility can lead to many things, but it will never come unless we first recognize our need for it. It is not only in our successes we can become prideful, or even in our, for even our salvation we can become prideful. When we take the credit for our salvation, for example, when we become prideful over being saved, when we forget to recognize the greatest victory in our lives over sin and death is not our victory, but the victory of Jesus Christ in us. When we fail to remain in humility, it is as though we are taking the credit for something which belongs to God, and in this way we become no different than the Israelites before us. Yet to remain in humility is to continue to praise God for our salvation and our blessings. And this will lead us to seeking Him in love, recognizing that in our despair we had no hope on our own, and yet we were given hope through Christ. It is to remember that we were dead, and now made alive through Christ. This should cause us to love more and more the God who saves and gives us life. Remembering that apart from grace and mercy, we would still be enslaved as the sinner is. And as Israel was, though it is that God used Jeroboam to unshackle the Israelites, he gave himself through Christ to unshackle each and every one of us. Therefore, be encouraged to praise God for blessings and for strengths. Praise him for work. Praise Him for abilities, for wins, for gains. For it is by His favor that we receive these things. And it is by God's grace that we are able to be involved by using what has been given to us to begin with. So remain in humility. Remain meek. Knowing God is sovereign. And that by Him we move and even have our being. The gospel. All of this reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is what teaches us truth. It teaches us righteousness. It teaches us justice. It is through the gospel we find our greatest cause for humility. For it is through the gospel we understand our desperate need for salvation. It is through the gospel we recognize we are dead in our sin. And being dead in our sin requires something other than ourselves to save us. This gospel reminds us. None can boast before God, for it is by God we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. This gospel begins with our origins. God is the creator and all else is created. 
Of everything he created, he created humans to be made in his image. Because God is a God of love, reason has personhood. Knows, can be known, and shows Hasid, we can as well. It is through this we find dignity, sanctity, and worth to all human life. Yet like God, we were able to choose. Originally, we, were, we could choose obedience and life, or disobedience and sin and death. We chose the latter and have continued to make that choice ever since. And because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world, they're all broken. We accrue a greater moral guilt before our God every day. Not a feeling of guilt, but true moral guilt, where we are guilty of judgment, just as the Israelites were. God did not leave us in this state forever. Instead, he revealed himself to us by his light and his word, which is his very son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is because of Jesus Christ we are healed from our wounds. It is through him we are redeemed from our sins. The judgment we once deserved is no longer on our shoulders. And we are made right with our God through the propitiation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance. We are to change the direction of our lives. We are not to live in whatever way we desire, but according to Jesus Christ and the scriptures, which reveal to us who Jesus is and the will of God for us, walking in step with the Spirit of God in love. And the second is faith in Christ. We are to recognize that it is not our deeds which save us from judgment, not our work which makes us righteous, but the work of Jesus Christ on the cross which saves us from sin, saves us from judgment, and makes us righteous before God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, that we are saved. For those who are obedient in these things, who are disobedient in these things, there is judgment. There is no righteousness apart from Christ. There is no hope of salvation. Instead, any who remain disobedient will find only the wrath of God. For those who are obedient, however, there is unending peace with our God. We find we are victorious over our sin through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We are more than conquerors in Christ. We are co-heirs of an eternal kingdom where we will remain with our God forevermore in his love. Be encouraged. Be encouraged to continue on in the faith. To remember justice and righteousness. To seek these things in truth. To not be swayed by any righteousness or justice which is contrary to the righteousness and justice which flows forth from the throne of God who is our King and our Lord. Thus we have a need for humility, for it is by him we know these things, not our own, but by his grace. And let this lead us further into this grace, and further into the glory of God forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the justice and righteousness which we can know and we can grasp. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who teaches us these things, who has shown us what righteousness is and what justice is, and also, Lord, what love is. For he laid down his life for each of us. He laid down his life so that we may live, that we may be declared righteous, and that your wrath may be averted. And so, Lord, 
We ask that this gospel be with us and that we proclaim it, that we are bold, and that we remain steadfast in you. And Lord, we ask you to keep us and walk with us in this life. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing.